Let's be honest, most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs. Opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Welcome to Fintech Insider News, your one-stop source of everything you need to know in fintech and banking in the last week. I'm David Breer, and we are coming to you live from Level 39 in London, which, as we know, is the heart of fintech. Fintech Insider is brought to you by the fine people at 11FS, the company helping banks become truly digital. I'm joined by my 11FS colleagues today, Jason Bates, Simon Taylor, and Chris Skinner. And joining us for the news today, we have James Arscott, who is the CCO of Investor. Let's get on with the news. Okay, thanks very much for, for joining us. From the regulars in the room, we have Chris Skinner. Say, hey, Chris. Hey, Chris. Simon, say hello. Hello. And Jason, say hey. Oh. Wow, Jason <laughs> has a mouthful of cookie. I was telling him off 15 seconds ago about this, but hey-ho, here we are. And also in the room, James. James, say hey. Hello. Tell us a little bit more about Investor before we get into it, because actually uh, we're, we're going to start rolling through this pretty quickly, and it'd be great to get this uh, introduction from yourself. Sure. Okay. Well, um, Investor is actually a, it's a mobile app that bridges the gap between um, the financial elite and the hundreds of millions of uh, wannabe investors, if you like. What we're trying to do is actually help people learn how to become great investors uh, through what we think is a unique experience, combining content, uh, socialize, socialization and gamification, and all of this on a mobile platform. So that's us in essence. Awesome. And uh, no doubt we'll uh, talk to you about that again in the future. Before we get into the bits of the news, Chris, you have actually been in the news quite a lot this lately this week. So you have been named FinTech Advisor of the Year by Finance Monthly. So awesome. Well done. That's a pretty cool accolade to get. Thank you. I was also one of their 25 global game changers, as it turns out, which was unexpected. And I've talked about gamification, haven't changed my game much lately. <laughs> so awesome and greedy, taking two yeah. awards, not one. That's, uh, that's pretty good. Buy one, get one free. If you've not changed your game, it must be because you're the OG, right? <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Um, the other thing you've been up to this week as well, so you've been over at the World Economic Forum. So um, tell us a little bit more about it. What was the, the general chat and uh, how's, the, uh, how's the world changing? Yeah, I mean, um, the World Economic Forum is regularly investigating, researching and producing reports about the future of the financial industry, mainly because obviously for the financial industry is at the core of government and society and the economies. And um, that's reviewed every year at Davos. It was interesting at Davos this year, for example, that blockchain became a big discussion point with my main takeaway on that one being that Ant Financial will get 2 billion customers by 2025. Amazing numbers um, going global. They're producing a report in the summer of this year around the future of finance, bringing in a lot of the fintech industry experts and a lot of the uh, leaders of innovation in banks, basically looking at um, scenarios for the future and how the technology will play out. So it'll be interesting to see what they produce in June, July time. 
Awesome. Well, we'll uh, look out for that and uh, maybe get together some of the people who were, were there to uh, chat about it a little bit more. First up, what we have, so uh, over on Business Insider, so this is an article written by Oscar Williams Groot, who is saying that innovative app-only banks are doing something old-fashioned, which is lending money. So what do we think about this one then? Chris, maybe starting with you. Yeah, I mean, um, you've got a lot of the startup banks um, moving into the traditional products and services that banks offer. Uh, mainly because they don't have the overhead that traditional banks um, have, as in lots of buildings and humans. But equally, they don't have any customers. So that's one of their challenges. They have to get some. Um, and they do that by offering better interest rates, as we saw with Atom in the UK, offering 1% above the main high street banks. But it, what's even more interesting for me is uh, you know, some of the other areas in fintech are moving into banking as well. So you've got startup banks obviously moving into full-service uh, products, including lending. But you've also got people like Zopa, who are peer-to-peer lenders, moving into full-service banking because they've now got a banking license um, or going through the process of getting one. So um, it's really all about as you grow up, you have to diversify because you can't depend on the revenue streams from just one source. Yeah, and this is N26 in Germany specifically, the uh, the bank that uh, we've interviewed Valentin a couple of times, I think, and spoken to him in one of the early podcasts on Fintech Insider. And what's interesting is, as an app-only bank, it's interesting to figure out how are people choosing to make money. And lending has historically been you know, a very profitable business to be in. But actually, if your message and everything you're about is, we're going to be responsible, you kind of have to get that right. I mean... Lending can be a bit of a drug, a very profitable drug for for a lender. So how's this going to play out? I mean, it's going to be one to watch. Is this just new people with new logos doing the same old lending or are we actually going to see differentiation? I hope it's the latter. Yeah, I think you will see differentiation because an awful lot of what's happening with the fintech community of startup banks and um, equally the peer-to-peer lenders and others that are coming in is that they've got much better credit credit analytics because they understand technology and data than the banks have. So they can, you know, if, if you look at something like Wonga, for example, um, you know, Wonga's differentiation is all about their data data analytics and being able to do credit vetting in such a fine-tuned way that they weren't going to lose lots of money. Yeah, their default rates are much lower, aren't they, I believe? And well, Zopa's default rates are minimal, I mean, less than 1%. Compared to banks, which are typically about 2.5%. So yeah. it's really interesting looking at how, if you, if you get data, then you can really get into the core essence of risk, which uh, is what they're doing. But data very much depends on the number of customers that you have. Mm. A lot of these players don't have the customers yet. So I think you'll see some interesting plays where they'll use the traditional credit agencies, the traditional ways of doing things and models, while training against all kinds of data that you can get. Everything from geolocation through to how many times people download apps, how they interact, what they're saying, how they act, what they buy. I I think that's going to be interesting where, uh, where you'll see... Probably not a, a, a massive change to start off with, but the the ability to bring all of those things in versus the traditional model of what financial products have they had before and how have they paid them back. That's such a tiny slither of data mm. compared to everything that a, a next generation bank will be able to, to acquire. Well, it's very interesting in Brazil when I was talking to Banco Original, which is a new startup bank in Brazil. And one of the key things they said is that in their credit analytics, they were using an awful lot of social data as well as obviously your financial scores to vet people coming on on stream. And interestingly enough, you know, companies like Klarna 
um, taking on you know, the risk of payments based on postcodes and the data analytics around postcodes. And w- when I interviewed them, they were saying, well, that worked in Sweden because Sweden gives you an awful lot of data around where you live, whereas it doesn't work so well in someone like Spain because you don't have the access to the same rich vein of information. But, but there is a risk here that we create credit to ghettos where there are postcodes or particular types of people who suddenly can't lend anymore yeah. because in reality the default rate for that person, whoever it is and however we've defined them, leads the bank to say, well, then you're, they're not going to be profitable and and there's more than a good likelihood that they won't be able to pay it back. Yeah. So, so in some fun. ways, the, the data is great in that the people who, who can get it you know, will do really well. In other ways, it could be you know pretty bad for parts of society. Well, we're talking all the time about financial inclusion. You might have data exclusion, which is really that point. Because uh, there's a lot of people in the UK, I think that last number was about 10 million who aren't using the internet. Mm. Yeah, so there is a challenge there. But isn't that where the community bank is going to come in? It's actually going to exactly that. The, the people who are going to be excluded through all these analytics coming through are excluded. That's the purpose of the community bank is going to come forward and help those people out. Good role. That's the right. dream. That's the dream anyway. <laughs> well, I, th- I think that's the interesting thing. And actually, Chris, I think I saw you post something about this on, online. Actually, I think it was a cartoon where 10 years ago, people were saying, but the differentiation between us and all those challenger banks is that we have all of these branches and, you know, cut to today and everybody's shutting them as quickly as they can. So it's an, an interesting thing that arguably that would be the differentiation for that 10 million base. But arguably for a, a very large banking organization, that that even that size of oh, well, pie probably isn't big enough. Really interesting conversation I was having yesterday um, with uh, German Bank, um, and they were saying that a lot of their competitors are closing branches really quickly, and as a result, they've been they become the last branch in town, and they've gained something like five hundred thousand customers last year as a result because you know people don't want to just have digital access. So, to a large extent, still, just culturally, particularly in Germany, apparently, um, like the idea of being physically able to go somewhere. But that's the same in this country as well. I mean, this is an interesting point. I don't know if we're going to be covering co-op later on, but you know, look, look at the demographics of the of the bank's customer base. Uh, I think co-op is a prime example where, if you look at the demographics, I think you're going to find it's actually a, a sort of a, a socially older generation group who, for all this sort of smart technology coming forward and all these innovative products, they don't care. Mm. What they want is a branch. And actually, you could argue, I think of my hometown, where we had seven different banks with branches, there's now only one. Well, everybody's, op- everybody's transferring the bank accounts to there. So in fact, that particular bank in that local branch is actually doing quite well. That's the problem with legacy customers. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yes, but there's a lot of them. Yeah, there's a lot That's of them. That's the thing. True. Connected to this one actually is uh, some news coming out of Tesco, which is they are offering a 3% current account, which was actually quite interesting given the, the talk about slightly changing on those those business models. Jason, what do you think about this one? It, it seems like quite an interesting one for, for Tesco to do, offering a you know this fixed rate return over, a, I think it's a two-year period, isn't mm. it? Well, I mean, they were offering it. It's been paused, uh, which I can only imagine is due to the a number of people who have been switching over with Santander 123 cutting their rates from 3% down to a 1.5% flat rate. Do you know that cost them a billion pounds a year, the 123 program? Well, and, and that's, the, that's the interesting question for me. 
because I remember talking to to one of the CEOs of one of the other challenger banks about how sticky customers are and whether they can really be acquired. And his view was that very much with the right deal, you can acquire them, you know, as fast as you can as you want. So, so it's interesting but when here. you stop the deal, you lose them just as quickly. Pretty yeah. much, or or it's interesting as to as to how that dynamic plays. You know, when money saving expert or or one of the big websites pushes customers towards you, suddenly there's this deluge. But at what cost? For how long? And what are you going to do with that capital in order to to make money from it? So I think it's um, it's an interesting move. I don't know anything about the the strategy behind Tesco Bank and what they're how they're playing this, but they obviously want a, a bigger deposit base, and they've gone out and bought it. I think it's a I think it's an interesting one. I, I think in a in a moment where there is uncertainty in the market and actually all of the challenger banks coming in, then it's a very smart move by Tesco to actually be in a position where you can lock in customers for two years and increase their stickiness. So, you know, arguably it's a it's a a better bet than spending a bunch of money on marketing to retain the customers that you've got and potentially attract a bunch of new ones with a you know a very sort of uh, interesting rate. No, what interests me is that on nearly all the incumbent banks are having this theme of how do you make money in a low interest environment? And then you've got these new startup banks like Atom and Tesco saying, well, we'll buy customers by offering a higher interest in a low interest environment. How are they going to make money? Yeah. yeah. Uh, moving on. So a post that we saw in the Telegraph. So this one was all about co-op, as, as you said, really deciding to put itself up for sale. Um, I guess the sad part of this sentence was it braces itself for another significant loss, which is uh, quite a, a, a scary thought given, I guess, the trajectory that it's been going. So what do we think about this? I mean, Court Bank, as we all know, had the uh, Methodist priest at the helm and uh, no longer there. <laughs> you know, to a large extent, it's a, been a bit of a basket case, mainly because under Basel rules, it's not got the capital shored up to cover itself in tier one capital risk. Um, and it's been seeking billions ever since it was then invested in heavily by hedge funds who obviously want to get their money back after putting quite a bit of money into the bank for the past few years. And it's a bank in terms of the brand is still very strong. It's got 4 million customers. Mm. TSB's shown some interest, but I think it's too early for TSB to make a move because they haven't unshackled themselves from Lloyd Systems yet. So how they could actually take on board another big bank, who knows? Mm. And to me, I thought the natural fit would only be with someone like Virgin because it's an ethical bank. Mm. And that's the sort of thing that Virgin would put across as part of their I brand. I think it was going to be the TSB brand, but TSB is actually owned by Banco Sabadell. So I imagine it would more look like Banco Sabadell would acquire it and put the TSB brand over it. Or keep the co-op brand and put their systems in. As Which never makes Sabadell like Santander a big player in the UK. Um, and secretly, what's interesting is BBVA was the other one I was going to put it as one of the contenders. But BBVA has put money into Atom. I don't think they want to be a branch-based UK bank. Agreed. But then you can also look at the banks that made bids for Williams and Glynn. So yeah. Clydesdale obviously are, have a, a bit of a war chest and looking towards towards growing their customer base. So it, it is interesting from that point of view of you've got Tesco Bank using 3% to buy whole numbers, you know, swathes of customers, where this is another way of, of really getting in there. But the, the question is, how does it integrate? If, mm-hmm. if those customers are there because of, it, of its ethics, then do you blend those into the bank that's buying them? Do you keep it separate? In which case, it's a problem because then you're going to be running two bank brands and how does that yeah. work? You know, there's, there's a quandary here, isn't there? With just to the- be explicit on that ethical piece, you know, a core bank has made a strong reportage over many years of where 
and what companies they will not invest in yeah. because of their links to guns, terrorism, or whatever. Um, whereas most banks are very happy to invest in those companies if it makes money for them. And so uh, you know, a, a traditional bank will not be buying the corp. Yeah. It has to be someone like Sabadell or maybe a virgin who can align themselves with those ethical stance. It, it is interesting to look at how many of these banks or challenges or Williams and Glynn and uh, co-op there's a really big bank there to build. If, if you had a big old stack of cash, someone comes and gives you a billion, you could actually build a, you know, a pretty big old bank with, with existing customers. That's what most banks are spending over the next three years on digital transformation, isn't it? But uh, anyway, moving on. Um, so interesting story, uh, Level 39 API member TrueLayer comes out of stealth and secures 1.3 million in funding. I spoke to Francesco Samanecci, uh, CEO of TrueLayer. Hey, Francesco, thanks for taking time to talk to me and congratulations on your latest round of funding. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for inviting me. My pleasure. So so can you tell me briefly about TrueLayer? What are you up to? Absolutely. So TrueLayer is an API platform that makes very, very easy to connect application with the bank infrastructure. Our first product is a data API that allows the very same application to consume the data inside of the bank accounts of their customers. Well, that sounds like the holy grail. I guess, um, you know, there's a lot of people looking for that at the moment. And with PSD2 and open banking APIs a little way off, I see you've already got a beta platform running. Uh, can you tell us, you know, how does that work? Is that using Yodly or, or something like that in the back end? Yeah, so we, we don't use Yodly at all. Mm -hmm. We are we are running our own technology. It's mm -hmm. somehow our secret sauce. But let me say that uh, it's not entirely true that banks doesn't have APIs. They actually do, and the only problem is that those are private. So okay. we do a little bit of uh, magic behind the scene to allow application to access those APIs, and in turn we uh, give back to them a nice. And, and parse JSON format for uh, consuming this kind of data. So is that uh, transactional data, um, sort of read-only stuff at the moment? That's correct. So our core use cases are KYC and identity. So the, the idea is to leverage the existing identity uh, held at the bank for identifying a new user. And then you can get all the data out of your bank account like balance and transactions payment and so forth well that sounds great i guess uh having spoken to the guys at money dashboard and some of the the bigger traditional aggregators the problem always seems to be in having the trust for getting customers to enter their banking credentials into a new service have you seen anything around that are you doing anything clever around getting around that problem absolutely so th there's a couple of things the first one is that you always need to establish um, a trust relation between you as a platform and the end user. We really, really care about um, security and establishing this, this trust. So what, what we allow is application to create grants. So those kind of grants and permission are um, going to tell the end customer what kind of data the application is about to touch and receive. We believe that this um, kind of like full transparency will absolutely encourage users to share securely their credentials and um, on the other side share their, their data. 
So I had a look at your website. It looked very much like a Facebook, you know, pop-up. Is that the, the model? Absolutely. That was kind of the source of inspiration, creating a Facebook Connect for your bank account. Mm -hmm. And we believe that as time will progress, there's going to be a variety of services that we can uh, keep adding to the platform. So we are starting with data, but we have very ambitious plan to move over different kinds of services. So uh, you will see us getting into payments and, and, and other services in the future. That sounds great. So a lot of people are very excited about PSD2 and the potential for both fintechs and large players to aggregate data, to create an intelligent dashboard and a, a whole new group of fintech businesses. Is that how you see things? Yeah, I, I believe that this is like a way broader movement here. PS, PSD2 is just one aspect. There's a piece of regulation that, in my view, is actually pretty helpful in establishing just a clear uh, regulatory framework. But it's it's just an effect of something that is happening in the market is something like much more profound if you, if you like and the whole idea is that banks are becoming software companies and so when when you have software in the wild you need a way for communicating between different front ends and back ends and uh, apis are this kind of backbone so we really want to enable this new environment where different front ends are communicating with the bank infrastructure. That's great. Uh, where can people find out more about TrueLayer? Yeah, you can visit our website, truelayer.com. You can follow us on Twitter uh, at TrueLayer, and you can write me via email, francesco at truelayer.com. Francesco, great to hear from you. Thanks again. Thank you very much. Excellent. Uh, moving on. So we have the next story up comes on Asian Review. So this is Japanese mega banks, which sounds amazing, <laughs> uh, raises bets on fintech. What do we think about this one, Simon? Well, I'd love for it for, to, for it to be a giant robot that was kind of walking through Canary Wharf. Taking and, Godzilla. Yeah, yeah. Some, some kind of anime. Or um, As it turns out, it's that uh, there's a bunch of banks, uh, Mizuho Capital and SMBC Venture Capital and Dutchie Life Insurance, have invested a total of about $1.75 million uh, in an organization called Bitflyer. Bitflyer being a cryptocurrency exchange. Uh, a cryptocurrency exchange being where you tick um, regular pounds, pence, dollars, euros, yen, and whatever other currency you can that's backed by a central bank. And in exchange, you get magical internet funny money. Um, but it, what's interesting about this is they're seeing this magical internet funny money um, and the know-how to use that funny money um, the you know, to help provide more secure and cheaper international wire transfers. And I think there's there's definitely you know a bet on fintech that's coming more and more from the Japanese market. There's another thing in this article here about the fintech revolution is about more than virtual currency. Mizuho here are uh, teaming up with SoftBank Group, and SoftBank I think are the ones who acquired ARM Technologies. So these guys are going on tech in a big big way, um, are putting artificial intelligence to work in screening um, personal loan applications, and then they're also looking at it with business and small businesses in Tokyo Mitsubishi UFJ. So there's I think just a bit of a, a push here coming from the Japanese banks to say, hey, we realize we've been late to this fintech story. We want to get involved more and more. And actually now we're starting to see that come through. It's tagged to another story I saw on uh, Coindesk.com earlier this week, 
where the Bitcoin currency itself, nearly 30% of the liquidity is now um, bought in Japanese yen. Like 30%, that's as much as the US dollar and much as um, you know, coming out of the Chinese yuan. The Japanese um, kind of regulator, uh, there are rumors coming out of those circles saying that Japan is going to be the first country in the world to make Bitcoin a legal currency. And if Bitcoin becomes a legal currency, suddenly everybody goes from going, ha, 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 this Bitcoin's lovely, isn't it? <laughs> but it's never going to be real, is it? Wait, Japan just made it real. Uh, this is why the price of Bitcoin is still looking pretty strong, even though China's clamping down on it in a big way. So watch Japan. Um, seems to be like their, their mechanoids are waking up and they're, they're, they've killed Godzilla in the fintech world and they're, they're looking to come after us a but, bit. But hold on. I want to challenge this Bitcoin as a currency thing because it's one thing to have a legal definition that says yeah. it's a currency. It's another thing when you can't buy anything apart from drugs with it. Uh -huh. You know, how how is Bitcoin a currency where it seems everyone's buying it as an asset? You need to go to purse.io. Like, you can go get vouchers for just about everything off purse.io at a 20% discount only if you buy them with Bitcoin. Now, that sounded like an advert for them, but, <laughs> yeah. but actually, like, there are a bunch of services like that. I feel like the But is that not in just some way converting it to currency and then, you know, yeah. converting it to currency and, and then selling you a voucher? Yeah, all right. Fair enough. Like, it, it's still a pain in the ass. Let's, let's be honest about it. Bitcoin ain't easy. Um, there's still a lot of work to do in terms of making it scalable, and there's a lot of work to do to make it secure and to have people trust it and understand it. And overwhelmingly, the number one use case is storing it like gold as like an asset that's going to appreciate in value. Uh, but actually, that might not be the case in 20 years' time. And this is a moment in which we're seeing one of those small changes that leads to a big change over time. So, yeah, I take your point. It's not something that you're going to be able to spend in on Amazon anytime soon or for everyday shopping. But, you know, give it time. Things like this are really significant. Just jumping back to Japan for a second, in that uh, what I find interesting is that there's so many countries that are now waking up to fintech uh, that really weren't alive or uh, you know, aware in 12 months ago, I mean, I was in Tokyo in last April and was shocked at how little fintech buzz there was. I mean, there was a buzz, but it was only just starting. Um, equally, um, I've been over in Norway um, twice in the last uh, three weeks. And again, Norway and the Nordic region is really waking up to fintech and starting to put a lot of aggressive you know, investment and effort into learning and nurturing and supporting that community. And I think what's happening, in fact, you see the same in Korea, Taiwan, and the, the rivalry, rivalry between Singapore and Hong Kong. You know, it's that all these countries want to be leaders in this space if they believe that financial services is important to their economy. Mm -hmm. And that's what Japan's really showing. You know, what amazed me, for example, is having not been, been awake, suddenly you've seen Stripe growing really quickly in Asia mm -hmm. in partnership with Sumitomo Matsui Credit Card Division. And um, as a result, they've doubled in value in 12 months. It's, so Yeah, the, those markets that are now really getting to grips with it from a policy perspective, yeah. as well as from an investment perspective, are definitely where fintech growth appears to be coming from. About Bitcoin, for example, you know, the Thai government banned Bitcoin, outlawed it completely. And then fintech came along and they go, oh, fintech involves cryptocurrencies. Okay, we will unban Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> because when people look at it, not for what it appears to be in the scary distance, but actually look under it at a spotlight, you go, it's a technology. It is neither intrinsically bad nor intrinsically good. There are a lot of things here that are usable. Um, the thing here coming out of Japan as well that I think amplifies your point, Chris, is that right now bank stakes in non-financial companies are capped at 5% by law. And again, the, the regulators there are looking at 
kind of removing that. So this global trend is is definitely a macro trend and one to watch. There's also something about the geographical arbitrage of what each region is strong with. You know, whether it has an identity card scheme and a number already, or whether it has a government that can just say, right, this is this is what's going to happen. I think that's one of the the reasons that while London and the UK have done, you know, done so well over the last few years. There are other regions that have some really interesting social, geographical, legal situations that make it much more likely that digital identity will happen somewhere else, that some of these, you know, cryptocurrencies will, digital currency will happen somewhere else. Just because I think they're better placed. There are, there are better places on the planet for these things to, to come about. I think one thing for sure, it's uh, it's not going away anytime soon, is it? I think uh, Bitcoin, it ain't perfect, but it ain't going away. So maybe moving on to the next one. Simon, you caught up with Marisol Menendez over at the uh, Open Innovation uh, Lab with BBVA to actually talk about the thing we were just talking about a second ago. So should we listen to that? Let's. I'm speaking to Marisol today, who's an Open Innovation Manager at BBVA. Marisol, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> oh, well, great to have you. We've been talking uh, a little bit about the new headline we saw in Finextra. And this headline was saying that uh, you're offering a $10,000 euro uh, reward for people who have ideas relating to how banks can have new products, new solutions, new ideas uh, in a low interest environment. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, you know, what this what this challenge is about, and also kind of the the, the concept of of having open ideas uh, put out into the marketplace? Sure, um, that's a good question. You know, I work at Open Innovation. I'm Open Innovation Manager, so everything we are working on right now for this year, and in fact for the last uh, eight years, is about connecting the ecosystem and trying to to create and find new solutions for whatever we are future we are to create, not only with, with BBA employees in this case, but with the community all around the world. And of course, there's this interesting challenge right now on thinking the new roles and the new models around financial industry in a context of low interest rates. For us, it's um, an interesting situation where, where we can maybe invite outsiders to think and propose new ideas. For us, the, another cool thing is that we can invite anyone who doesn't necessarily relate to the financial industry to have the opportunity to influence in the future. That's really cool. For us, more, more than the 10,000 euros award, for us, the most interesting part is that we will select 10 people to come and talk to our top management and discuss on the ideas of the future you know and that's that's really interesting thinking that we can create the future together that's super interesting i think if anybody's listening and has an idea um one there's the opportunity for the reward but two there's uh, an organization there that really wants to hear those ideas um so there's no harm in, in sending something through for the sounds of it if if somebody wanted to send you an idea how, how would they do that because we're trying to engage anyone and to really provoke this outside of the box thinking and really, really, um, we are eager to have people who don't usually collaborate with us to work in this. We try to make it really simple. So you can just record the podcast or a message, so to speak, or maybe record the video of yourself pitching the idea or write a PowerPoint or any document, no more than three pages. 
and that's it. Just explain what your idea would be, and you, it doesn't need to have any kind of a structure or yeah, business model. Just describe your idea. How would you envision the future? And we about that. That's fantastic. And, and where would they send this to? I will need to register in opentalent.com slash ideas webpage and filling a really easy um, um, link, their pitch or document there, and that's it. It's Fantastic. really, really simple. So there you have it. Uh, head yourself to bbvaopentalent.com forward slash ideas and you could win yourself 10,000 euros and you could be making a real difference to banking. Go do it today. Marisol, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for inviting me. I think that's really interesting. And I think it's going to be great to see what new ideas come out of that, really. So I think uh, it's very interesting when banks start to open up a little bit and uh, start to listen to outside sources rather than just thinking they have all the answers. So welcomed and uh, look forward to seeing what the response is. They did a really good hackathon for series. And I, I remember it because we were talking about this yesterday as well, which is um, how do you come up with new products and services based on data? And one of the ones they had that came out of their hackathon was, which they offered us an API of data from um, shopping in Madrid and Barcelona as a innovative uh, developer developed an app where you could find out where it was busy at this point in time and plan your day based on you know, the typical Tuesday payment cycle, for example, um, as to whether you go to the museum first, go to the shopping mall first, go to the beach first, you know, because it'll tell you where it's most likely to be busy based on who's using checkout terminals. Uh, moving on. So, Jason, over in the Telegraph, we have Pay As You Speak. So this is Santander Revamp's voice banking app. What do we think about this? I think it's one of those areas of technology that we're going to see a lot more of. It's it's like biometric, biometrics was last year in terms of everyone coming out with their you know their implementation of that particular technology. Santander are going to enable customers to make payments with their voice by talking to the smartphone app. So a little bit like the guarantee review that we did uh, last week on the 11FS blog, they're implementing something where you can tap the app. You can describe the payment, say, I'd like to pay Chris £10, and it will process that payment in the in the background. Just so, thank you. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there you go. It's like Siri. It's like Alexa. There's a lot of voice command, voice activation. But I'm not sure it fits within a banking app. It just seems like one of those technology that does fit within the environment of a home where I can give a variety of commands and payments is just one of those things. But for me, both chatbots and the voice-activated commands and payments aren't a within-a-banking-app kind of thing. They belong in a broader context. There is this thing where everybody's trying to pull stuff into their app. It's like, oh, it's something digital? Oh, well, do we do it in the app then? It's like, no, your platform is nice, but actually becoming invisible and being in everybody else's platform, that's the mindset shift, like going to where the, the platform is, to Alexa, to all of those open platforms. Is that, That's a really great point, Jason. Now, I guess I'm just the cynic here. I just sort of always think, always think of all those jokes. Remember years ago when it was the um, uh, the, the the auto voice thing, call through to to book a, a, t- a ticket in the cinema, etc. And you try to say, I want to go to the cinema at Tunbridge Wells and come up with Saffron Ward or what have you. It's this thing about reliability, and I still think there's an issue here. Again, I don't hands up here. I don't know how good it is yet, but I think that's going to be the issue with with users: is how reliable is it, and is is this point of trust? So you've got to think who the people are that would choose to use this within the app first. 
and they're going to be the ones that are going to want to uh, play with the gimmick, I think, initially. And secondly, if you've used any of these voice technologies recently, if you have an Alexa or a Google Home or anything like that, they're actually pretty good. Like, they are really good. Like, I think they've crossed that chasm from being like, eh, it kind of works some of the time, but usually it annoys me, into being like, it works most of the time for most people, but not for everybody. Can I object on that one, just on one issue? Yes, that it works very much depending on the languages. So it's extremely effective, for instance, in the Indian markets and the Chinese market, where um, intonation and punctuation is very, very firm. Actually, English accents is the biggest challenge for these systems. Mm. And actually, the the in-home ones have got a much greater advantage, given the bandwidth that they're using, using usually Mm. a a kind of home broadband speeds. Usually anything that's connected to an app and relying on, you know, 3G, 4G, GPRS, the reliability of being able to actually crunch that data to bridge any gaps, as you're saying, is is much, much harder. I think the voice thing is quite interesting in that there was that great story a month ago about the American newsreader who said, Alexa, buy a doll's house. And suddenly everyone in America was buying doll's houses because Alexa works in their households and heard the order. And so it's down to that point around consent, security and liability. And, you know, if you consent to use this app to do voice driven app payments, Mm -hmm. um, if it goes wrong, who's liable? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that ties into the authentication question because uh, Alexa for them at the moment won't let you do that Star Trek thing of authorization code alpha 124 uh-huh. you know there is none of that it's you ask it and it happens Absolutely. and it doesn't recognize your voice so anyone asks it and it happens mm-hmm. but arguably in a post PSD2 CMA remedy world with OAuths and all kinds of things set up and you know registry of fintech startups there will be fintech startups that are aiming at payments via voice integrated onto all of these platforms because you'll have all of the pieces there in order to make that happen. Mm. I think that's, that's going to be interesting when when banking moves away from the banking app into all of these other platforms. We, we do need to think about some sort of elaborate screwing with our listeners then. So for, for those who are listening via Alexa now, this is probably going to be starting to confuse your Alexa quite a lot. But uh, well, anyway, we'll give it a go. Um, what's about a doll's house? <laughs> Chris, you just couldn't help yourself. Did you? um, moving on. So this is one we saw on banking technology. So this is Amazon looking to buy Capital One. Ooh. That would be quite exciting. I made this noise when I heard it. <laughs> <laughs> what do we think? Well, it'd be uh, Amazon amazing. Um, and it's, uh, it's been predicted for a long time, you know, that Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon would get into financial services. And you know, there's been sniffing around the edges with wallets and payments in messengers. Um, but Amazon uh, is the only one of those uh, companies that specifically needs a payments facility in their core business, which they've had for a decade, because um, the others don't need banking and payments in the same way. Um, and when you look at something like Ant Financial, Alibaba and China, uh, they naturally have an integrated platform for mm. commerce with financial services. And so it makes absolute sense for Amazon to buy or open a bank and a full bank service at some point. Um, the, and then the question is, when they do, just as we saw Tower Records and Barnes and & Noble and everyone else fall by the wayside in the um, revolution of online books and um, you know, records, will we see the same with the banks? Interesting one, isn't it? I mean, it's also 
worth pointing out here that uh, even though this article is on banking technology, uh, the author does point out this is a rumor at this point. It's yeah. not. It's not like guaranteed. So we're on Capital One is that they are the most one of the most innovative US. Damn, that was what I was going to say next. <laughs> but we do love a good rumor. It's, it's a, a good, good rumor, rumor, and they're big users of AWS as well, which is. Indeed. I just want to add a comment on that, which I think is, you know, if the rumor becomes factual, I think it's going to be phenomenal. And also from a certain, from another perspective, and actually it's trust. You know, one of the biggest issues we have is that supposedly no one trusts a bank anymore. I'd say equally, people don't trust fintechs either because. They're small, they're startups, they don't know where they've come from, they don't know how rich they are, etc. They don't actually make money, much money. But the gaffers, the Googles, the Facebooks, they're part and parcel of everybody's life now. And in particular with Amazon, again, yeah. because Everybody it's uses it. Yeah. You know, I'm ordering stuff on Amazon all the time. And you I trust I, it. Yeah. That's the They word. always deliver, and I'm a prime user, so they always deliver fast. The only thing that concerns me is how much cardboard they're producing. I mean, it must be the biggest cardboard producer in Britain. Yeah, my recycling is a plenty. I have to say. Yeah. It, it's a, it is a terrifying thing. It's interesting if they, uh, for instance, uh, bundled Amazon Prime with a credit card, you know, David, you would be... Give me it now. <laughs> give, me, give, me, give, me, give me, Any element of cashback on Amazon purchases Absolutely. and I'll have that thing. So uh, moving on what, from one tech giant to another, uh, and this one unfortunately is having a, a little bit more trouble than usual. So this is the Australian banks fight back over Apple Pay fantasy claims. Sounds like quite an interesting one. Uh, what do we all think about this? I think Apple needs to open up its NFC functionality. That bottom line, that's the problem. So it's not. It's not. You know. It's. I mean, my question would be. You know, they're challenging Apple more than anybody else, and their and their so-called control. Correct. Mm -hmm. The issue is, or the question I would like to raise is, is how dominant is Apple in the Australian market? I thought it was much more of an Android um, dominant market, where there's no problems at all, and the banks have no issues with it. So is this them just sort of crying over a tiny bit of spilt milk? That's my it's, cynic view again, sorry. Yeah, it's the battle of monopolies. Yeah. <laughs> we want you to open your monopoly so our monopoly can win. No, we're not <laughs> letting you in our monopoly because you're going to have a monopoly then. Well, yeah, but this, this is the thing, isn't it? You know, we, we often talk about this banking battlefield and, you know, the, the Apples and the Amazons are, you know, they're not small companies that banks can sort of push around here. So, you know, arguably they've got as much money and much uh, as many customers, definitely in these spaces, than the enemy the banks have themselves. So it's going to be really, really interesting to see how this one's been playing out. I think the really interesting thing here is you know, that um, people are saying that it's only three of the big four banks that are resisting the Apple invasion. Um, and the fourth bank is saying, well, as a result, they're going to gain all the customers off the other three. Um, but then I look at the stats for mobile payments, and uh, even with the weight of Apple Pay, there was this stunning figures the other day about China, where I'm saying that in 2015, China processed $1.45 trillion, or 10 trillion yuan, through mobile payments, and predicted to be $3.2 trillion this year, compared to $8.7 billion in the US in 2015. Yeah, it's orders of magnitude difference. I mean, yeah. that is that is really significant. The, we, we talk about mobile payments like they've arrived in the West. They have not. They've arrived in China. Uh, what's happening here in Australia is is a little skirmish. And it and I think Jason's you know six of one, half dozen of the other analogy is, is pretty interesting here because this is a distraction from the true story, which is in mobile payments, which is absolutely China. Uh, but, but I think 
there is this mobile payments move, everyone's going there. But I don't think Apple Pay is winning. No. You know, you have not seen any details, any numbers, which is unusual for Apple. You know, but, they're, they're, they love... But I have know, written up some, some, something that I think there's a secret play here, which is when we get to the Internet of Things, if all my Apple things are transacting through an Apple wallet, mm-hmm. that's the real play they've got here. Um, so it's to ag- aggregate trillions of transactions on behalf of devices, not really to be a mobile wallet. I agree. I think it's a, a move in a game of chess and it's yeah. uh, it's to be sort of figured out exactly where we're going at the end of it in terms of where we are. Possibly more defensive. Right? There are payments players out there who would, you know, like the social networks would love to own your identity and own your payments. Um, Google would love to own your identity and own your payments. Amazon would love to own your identity and own your payments. Uh, but Apple, if they have a payments mechanism, that's the only one you can use inside their walled garden ensures that they can defend their territory, which is selling devices, really. Well, also, you've got to bear in mind that Apple don't have a social network or social play as such. Exactly. Um, they've tried, they've failed. And what's interesting for me is if you look at where you're really seeing the action in mobile payments, it's in the Venmos of this world. It's in the Alipays, it's in the Paytms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's where you've got social financial together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens when we see that coming to, you know, on the market. So I was just in Norway and Vips is uh, the dominant player there. And Vips is social mobile. In the last few sentences, you've summed up the Alipay 10 cent war. On one hand, you've got commerce and you've got the ability to bring payments around things that I'm buying, stuff I want delivered to my house. On the other hand, you've got social and the networks and the things that I want to to, to pay, the restaurants I want to book, the with friends thing. And that seems to be, at least in the East, the, the, the big competition. The my social network of billions of people versus your commerce network of billions of merchants. That's why the Alipay wallets um, being used more than cash in China for payments because it's bringing together the social and the commercial all in one app. Mm. So I don't have to keep ducking out elsewhere. It's it's my whole life. Mm. Mm. But I think increasingly though we're we're seeing payments being. The uh, you know there was a lot of talk about friction last year in terms of everything that Uber has done, but you know arguably the least friction ever would be if the operating system is actually managing payments, and actually that's where Apple and Google's ultimate play kind of has to be is those who own where all the customers are is likely to does kind of own the revenue. Does it need to be the operating system, or does it need to be the platform that goes across all your operating systems? Because if Facebook's on all of all everyone's operating system, then do you bake it into the OS or do you bake it into where the social is or does the government produce it? I think Jason's got something there. It's like we're seeing this war start to happen now as people are attacking this problem from different directions and I don't think there's an obvious answer. So that's why we haven't found the obvious answer. Yeah. So it's difficult if you're in a financial services organization to figure out you know, which horse should we back. You kind of have to dip your toe in all of them for that vocal minority of social media customers who are like, why haven't you done this innovative thing yet? Like introduce Apple. Apple Pay. Yeah. But otherwise, do you really have to push down on it? I don't think the consumer demand is there and I don't think the platform's ready. Mm. I have to say that's close to the show. There's not an obvious answer, which is why we haven't found the answer. <laughs> but we'll keep we'll keep talking about it, but I think we'll get there eventually. Um, mo- moving on to the next one the and continuing the trend of uh, big tech firms. So this is in the International Business Times. So this is Apple, Facebook and Amazon primed for PSD2 demolition of the card networks. Sounds kind of, uh, you know, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, end of day stuff. But uh, I think this one looks pretty interesting. Uh, what do you guys think? So I, I think one of the things people don't talk about around PSD2 
is the impact that TPP, these third-party payments, are going to have. The ability for me as a customer to tell a third party that they can then have access to make a direct transfer from my bank account to someone else's bank account, to pull, to push, to do a variety of things there, obviously uh, is going to have a big impact on a card network scheme, on the, the default way within which we transact at the moment. And that does open a, a whole host of new businesses, of low cost, of of taking out all of those intermediate players, card scheme processors, acquiring banks, issuing banks, and everyone in the middle. Suddenly it's me, my bank, their bank, money's gone. And I think that, that really is a threat to, to the, the card scheme monopoly, which I, I guess is why you're seeing MasterCard buy Vocalink, you know, Visa making their moves with PayPal. They've got to find a new way around this, surely. I think so. But at the same time, I think there's two underlying assumptions that are wrong in this news item. One is that um, PSD2 is going to give us open APIs and it's all going to be lovely jubbly. Um, it's not. It's going to be really messy and dirty and the banks are going to make sure that, yes, they'll offer you an API, but it'll be in a completely different structure to the other banks to make sure that if you're trying to access us, you've got to develop something completely proprietary to get our API to work with the other APIs you're trying to, to link with. And it'll take three months because security. Absolutely. And you've got to sign all these forms for compliance. Um, and then a second underlying assumption is that the card networks are just going to give up the ghost. You know, you've got to realize these card networks are everywhere. You know, they're global ubiquitous networks that are at every terminal point of sale checkout in the world. You're not going to wipe that overnight. And, you know, to a large extent, I think it's far more likely that Google, Apple, Facebook will be saying, how do we leverage API information, knowledge, data, and work with the card networks to leverage rather than trying to just decimate them? This is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> but it, you're right it, it's messy and PSD2 I completely agree will not be the panacea that makes suddenly everybody I mean PSD3 the, will be it, it, yeah <laughs> it just needs a plus one that's, that's, that was all that was missing all along that, that kind of does that uh, but the push payments and that third party payment provider thing is interesting if somebody could get the model right the idea that you could have a different type of API access to a different type of payment other than the card scheme Love that concept, but I don't know if it's going to happen. I guess one of the ways it could happen, given that we've got registries and, and there'll be a whole thing around, is the company big enough or established enough in order to get on this, is that major retailers could could definitely save themselves money in, in doing this stuff. So if, I don't know, John Lewis, Amazon, pick the 10 biggest retailers or bill providers, utility companies, and and suddenly they get the ability to, to transact and to create payments and payments on demand and payments in installments via this, you know, this new API uh, set, then you could very much erode the on the long tail the head of of those, um, you know, the the biggest retailers, utilities, the biggest payments. Government, you know, could very much be bank to bank, and then that that still allows the long tail for the for the uh, credit cards for the card schemes. But there's there's a problem there. I mean, that could be very much an entry into this uh, into this world. I think yeah. a new version of Farrell's happy happy. This is the truth. There's something about that non-utopia. There's not going to be a Stripe version of PSD2, or maybe there will be. But well, true there. I mean, we we heard mm-hmm. from earlier. Their their whole business model is around uh, connect 
tr taking a variety of different APIs, assuming the banks all create something else, then there'll either be an SDK, there'll be an aggregator, there'll be someone that normalizes and brings mm. those things together. Uh, because that's that's just the nature of mm. uh, of, of this kind of business. I, I love to see it. I just can't shake the feeling that this comes out like an account switching thing in which there's a really manual process and nobody ever gets <laughs> to have the fun they wanted to have in the first place. I, I think definitely that's where a lot of the organizations would like to take it. And I know with a lot of the work we've done at 11FS with regards to PSD2, you see sort of uh, polar opposites of people who are figuring out what you want to do to meet the minimum requirement. And then there are those who are really looking at what you can do to actually magnify the benefits of this. And if Apple, Facebook, and Amazon are looking at the benefits and what they can actually do with it, then uh, it kind of probably spells, if nothing, a very good opportunity for the customer to have greater choice. So we'll see where this one goes. Um, moving on, this is three steps fintech companies need to take in order to survive. So I actually talked to Chris Myers, who is the co-founder and CEO of Bodhitree. So let's hear from Chris now. Fantastic. Well, I'm, I'm joined today with uh, Chris Myers. Chris, you're the co-founder and CEO of Bodhitree. Um, tell us a little bit more about Bodhitree first. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me this morning. Uh, Bodhitree is a financial management platform for small businesses. You know, one of the things that we've seen over the years is that while there are incumbent players like QuickBooks and others out there when it comes to accounting, uh, in reality, on the ground, very few small businesses actually do what they're supposed to do with respect to bookkeeping and organizing their financial data. Uh, that in and of itself is not revolutionary uh, by any means, but I think the implications of it are significant. So what we do basically is automate that process uh, for small businesses, but with the explicit goal of helping them work better with their institutional partners. Uh, you know, predominantly banks, but also insurance companies, uh, franchisors, if, if they're a franchisee, that sort of thing. So, you know, we, we solve that pain point for the business owner, but we, we really end up serving the institutional partner uh, first and foremost. You know, any organization that connects, aggregates and or serves the small business community. Great. Well, uh, you know, love to have you back on at some point to talk about that because there's uh, huge amounts of opportunities in that space, as uh, no doubt you're finding. Um, the, the reason to have you on today is about a really interesting article that you wrote on Forbes. So this was the three steps fintech companies need to take in order to survive. So tell us a little bit more about the article and then uh, and then we can actually maybe unpack a few of those steps. Yeah, certainly. So, you know, I, I actually wrote a two article uh, kind of back to back series, if you will, with Forbes. Uh, the first one kind of articulating my view that uh, fintech is not living up to uh, the, the hype that has surrounded it for many, many years now. And, uh, you know, it was it was a little bit of an alarmist sort of dire take on, on things. And uh, my goal, of course, wasn't to be uh, claim that the sky was falling, but it was to point out a lot of the misconceptions that surround the space. The, the follow-up article about what you need to do to survive was really meant to be more of the positive takes. It's not all doom and gloom. Here's what's positive across the board. Yeah, no, that makes that makes total sense. I think it's uh, 
it's an interesting sort of dialogue that you kind of get into, like you say, in terms of the almost the the idea of this sort of grand war that is undertaken between fintech and banking. And uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, there's definitely a lot of hype in there in terms of doing it. Maybe getting into the the, the three things then that you you felt uh, you know the the steps in which uh, the fintech companies really needed to survive. So step one was ensure you have the right investors. Now. What did you mean? Uh, what did you mean particularly in, in, in that part? Yeah, I think that's probably one of the most important uh, things that any you know, prospective fintech company can do in order to be successful. When you think about the venture capital landscape and the investment landscape, particularly here, you know, in the U.S., where it's very much a, a Silicon Valley-driven kind of initiative, uh, you run into the challenge of time horizon and investment horizon. And, and basically, you know, a lot of these funds are systemically built up on the premise that they're going to exit in three to five years. And they're looking for a 10x uh, exit, and they'll do everything in their power to support that and, and to get to that point. And quite frankly, that means giving you a, a huge pile of money and expecting you to spend it aggressively uh, in order to reach that, that scale and that growth and, and get out. Uh, and that may work very well in consumer products and in media and other areas. However, in finance, there's a fundamental disconnect uh, between the velocity of finance and the velocity of technology. So fintech in and of itself is almost a kind of a, an exercise in conflict, right, in an internal conflict. And so when you have the traditional investor space uh, that is looking for an exit over that time horizon, one of the challenges you have is that you're forced then to make short-term decisions. And I think you see this quite quite often in the, the lending space. Uh, you, you start off with an alternative lender that sets out to you know, use technology and engage uh, using data to, to make you know, better lending choices. And that's, that's a very interesting thing. But as the pressure mounts for them to grow, you know, driven by their VCs, uh, they end up just becoming marketing companies and trying to you know, do the same thing that the big guys are doing, but with more expensive ad spend. So yeah. if you find the right investors that are uh, long-term investors that understand that you know, success in fintech takes you know, 10 plus years in some cases on, on, yeah. the, on, on the quick side, uh, that is going to very uh, be, be very, very impactful in terms of plotting your course forward. Sure. And, and I guess this is sort of quite related to step two, which is, you know, stay lean and don't act like a startup, uh, a tech startup particularly. And I, and I think, you know, connected to your point around, uh, you know, frugal behavior, then, you know, not spending money like you've got to get rid of it is is definitely a, a negative trait that we're seeing potentially being ported over. I think, you know, connected to your, your VC comment, you know, there's there's organizations that you see getting really, really significant rounds that, you know, we've been left scratching our heads wondering what they're really going to be doing with that amount of money. So it's, um, it's an interesting, an interesting step, isn't it? It is, it is. And, you know, I think that when it, when it comes down to don't act like a startup, there's really two different elements to that. The first is what you just described, right? Uh, not trying to, to get rid of money, <laughs> which it sounds funny when you say it that way, but it's, it's absolutely the case. Uh, but the second part, I think, is more cultural. Right, making sure that you you don't come in as the the brash young disruptor into a space that has taken literally hundreds of years to establish, 
you know, and, and really trying to shake things up from that from that perspective. There, there's a certain degree of gravitas and and also I think uh, humility, honestly, that has to play in when you're going into this sector. So you know that manifests itself in how you act and also how you spend in your business. So trying to stay lean, raising those smaller rounds, and uh, really proving out that you you have uh, an incrementally an incremental improvement, perhaps, on the way things have been done for hundreds of years, uh, is is I think the, the path to success. Yeah, and step three, you you had as show respect for your incumbents, but hedge your bets. So I, I guess here we've seen, you know, we've 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 seen the the sort of you're stupid, we're smart, we need to break banks, we not uh, not help them mentality sort of come through, and and arguably what you're advocating here is a quite a different approach. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the first thing that all fintech uh, companies need to understand is that this is not a level playing field. This is not a scenario where, you know, a startup that was uh, founded in a dorm room somewhere can burst onto the scene and, and take it by storm. It does not work that way. And, and the reality is uh, that's the truth for any heavily regulated industry. You know, if you think about the big banks here, the Wells Fargo's of the world or the cities or Chase, you know, those, again, are hundreds of years in the making right across the board. And so, you know, I, I have always been of the, the belief that the successful players will be the ones that learn to work with those organizations. The reality of the fintech you know, scenario right now is that if a fintech company gets in trouble or makes bad loans or makes a bad bet or or doubles down on something they shouldn't, they're done. If a bank does that, they can lobby the government and ultimately through you know FDIC insurance here and the, the banking system in general, I mean, you can effectively lobby to print more money if you needed to. It's not an equal playing field. And uh, you know, when, when uh, technology companies are disrespectful or flippant when it comes to what it has taken for organizations to become established over the years, uh, it's it's really just a foolish way of going about. I completely agree. I think it's a uh, you know in in companies, but also in general walk of life. I think it's uh, respect for your elders is a definitely a sensible thing to have, uh, but maybe just don't fear them. I think is the uh, the interesting yeah. thing. Exactly. But um, so thank you very much for joining us. We'll we'll definitely have you back to talk more about uh, about your company. But um, Chris Myers, uh, CEO of Bodhi Tree, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I like that point three. Um, show respect for incumbents. That makes perfect sense. I mean, uh, having come from an incumbent and spent a lot of time working with fintech startups, I have seen firsthand how much the knowledge inside large banks who've been there and done it and financial institutions can really help fintechs grow their business. And that partnership thing is is really starting to happen. Uh, there's also like people that have been through the problem before. They might have some prejudices about how you solve the problem, but at least they understand the problem. And I think being able to articulate and understand the problem is, is hugely beneficial to a fintech startup. I think that point is one that I would regularly share with, with anybody starting on their fintech journey. I think there's a you know a pivot here around uh, you know big incumbent organisations saying to fintech you don't get banking and fintech saying 
saying to, to, to banks, you don't get innovation. And it's, uh, it's kind of, uh, the, the merry-go-round of that conversation will probably only be proven by what customers do, I guess. If, uh, if it turns out that some of these challenger banks scale to a, a really healthy space, then, um, maybe that argument gets put to bed pretty quickly. And I should also bring that down to a more personal level. I mean, with, with, with startup businesses, and I've been through a few and experienced other people's experiences. And on that third point, people come up with these great ideas, these entrepreneurs, they always think they're right. You know, even when it goes wrong and the thing fails, they're still right, you were all wrong. And I think one of the key thing, one of the key things I always advise these kind of people to do is always to have a challenger. You know, call them a foil, a strawman, a challenger, what have you. It could be a friend, but someone who can actually, you can trust to actually come back and say, actually, you're going down the wrong route. Mm-hmm. That is where so many, so many of these startup businesses fail. I totally agree. And, and actually with Monzo, Starling, you know, we often involved people who were experts in the industry. But you were looking for someone really specific. You were looking for someone who knew the difference between something that you had to do because of first principles. Because even today, you'd still do it the same way because there are really good reasons for it. Versus the, it's always been done that way. You know, why should we do this? Well, it's always been done that way. Um, that was the that was the wrong answer. You know, someone who could give you the regulatory reason or the business reason or the customer reason and could actually think about these things from first principles that had 20, 30, 50 years um, was the guy to look for. And uh, I remember a, uh, you know, one particular guy that the team got in, a guy who'd built two core banking systems over the last sort of 30 or 40 years and was basically retiring. But the amazing conversations to have with this guy and the, you know, the, the world-class sort of Monzo engineers around how to build a core banking system, you know, should you have an end of day, you know, how would you represent money? And, and this guy would, you know, turn around and go, you don't want to do that, you know, oh, when Yugoslavia collapsed in wherever, we were in all kinds of trouble because we did that. And, and that kind of back and forth of, of the respect of knowing this guy had been there and with four megabytes of memory and a you know a one gigabyte disk drive to support millions of accounts across the UK. They've done some amazing things. The constraints have changed now, but there are still some things that, that you can learn from that deep experience. Think, yeah, there's a core point there, both for the banks and for the startups, in that um, by way of an aside, I was having my hair cut today and I said to the barber that I was really surprised by how grey it was. And he said, well, that shows wisdom. And I thought, well, there you go, you see. And it's all about the balance between having wisdom and vision. And so if I see a fintech startup that's just full of youth, I would, uh, you know, coming into this industry, I, I'd say exactly what you just said, which is, you know, none of you have been through the, 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 the crash probably. None of you have seen some of the things that we've seen in Asia or Latin America in the 1990s, you know, and you don't understand the complexities. And they just say, ah, what do you know, old man, you know? Well, the old man has wisdom. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd rather see a business that's comprising you know, some youth and some maturity. Um, and this goes back to something that you and I were talking about, in, Simon, when it comes to blockchain startups and looking at investing in them, that a lot of them may come with really good technology prowess and understanding, but they don't understand the industry. Mm-hmm. Or they come with really good industry understanding, but they don't understand the technology. You've got to have a balance. And the reverse point is exactly the point back to the banks, which I keep making, which is the banks are full of bankers. That is the problem, because you need to have balance. You need to have technology guys in the leadership team. And to be balanced, it should be half and half, thereabouts. And right Right now, in most bank boardrooms, it's 90% plus bankers and 10% or less or no technologists. And that is the problem. So I, I, just, I don't want to pitch my company, but just to give you an example about you know, wisdom and technology, 
you know, you look at there's there's three senior managers in our operation, and amongst us, between the three of us, we have about 120 no 130 years experience in in the financial markets. So that's the wisdom bit. But obviously, we're not you know I'm not saying we're luddites, but we're not the technology people. But we have very young people who come up with the solutions. I think that's why our business is a success because we balance the two. We've come from the financial industry. We've been there a very very long time. We know the problems. We've come up with an innovative idea that we want to develop, but we're relying on the smart kids on the block, if you like, to actually create the end product. I think it's I think it's really interesting because I, I think there's no there's never any absolutes in this one, is there? I don't think age brings wisdom. I know quite a lot of stupid old people. Um, <laughs> so actually, I'm not, not looking at anybody in particular in this in this room at all, obviously. But I think the you know so actually there are smart young people and there are smart old people, and actually there are people who are probably smart beyond their years in terms of their mentality or the approach to doing things. So, but I, I think there's, it's hard to shortcut experience, I'd, I'd say. I think that's the the key thing. And, you know, like anything, whether it's, um, you know, coming from a sporting background, actually, you know, the people who have, you know, swung the golf club the most are probably going to be the best ones at doing it. It's very rare you'll get somebody who will pick it up and just knock it out of the park in terms of where they're at. So, you know, I think practice does make perfect on this stuff. And You should have respect for incontinence. I can come, Indeed, absolutely. Um, and moving on very quickly uh, and mopping up, um, we have a program on a piece on Medium. So this is quite an interesting one and probably quite an interesting one to, to leave it with and one that reasonably terrifies me on the basis that I get uh, a crazy amount of emails coming through every day. But this is a get paid to read email from outside of your network with a 21 profile. So this is essentially giving people the ability to bid on sending you email, which, you know, given my outburst earlier on this week on, on LinkedIn, uh, the amount of random companies that send me intros to talk about either offshoring or random things, then, you know, it, it kind of feels like this is probably quite relevant right now. Uh, so this is by uh, 21. So 21 are a Bitcoin company um, backed primarily by uh, Andreessen Horowitz. And this they, they went in for like 121 million. Like they, they invested an obscene amount of money in this company that is not growing. But this is their first. And originally they were going to develop uh, like a modem for Bitcoin. So you're going to have a little heart. Everyone was going to have a little device inside their mobile phone or inside IoT. or And it was going to talk to the Bitcoin network. So you didn't need to worry about converting money. Everything was and It was a really nice idea, except that they couldn't make the economics work because Bitcoin is a race to the bottom. It was nice on paper, but it hasn't actually worked out. So this is a heck of a pivot for a company with, you know, that's Series A round was effectively the size of most Series DE rounds for companies that are scaling up. And so this one, yeah, I've seen a few people on Twitter in the blockchain space already with it. Uh, basically, they'll have like the 21.co forward slash their username in their bio. And then what happens is you click that and you send them an email and you only pay if they read the email and or if they respond the email. So it's basically a way of ensuring that they have to really want to send you that email because they are going to pay if you read it and they are going to pay if you respond to it. So actually, it's a nice... Bit of an interesting hey, so spam there you filter. Go. Maybe we could set up another part of the 11FS consulting company, which is micro consulting through a 21.co address. Yeah. You know, maybe, like, maybe we set, uh, you know, you can send us a question and we'll, we'll it's, it's, like it's, it's not a, a bad idea. It's a modern version of, of, of the piece rate payment system, isn't it? Yeah, potentially. Yeah. Basically, yes. Or turning into blue collar workers. I, I, do, I do think it's uh, an interesting one because there's so much 
there's so little thought sometimes put into emails that uh, people are sending to people that actually if they're going to pay for it, they might force them to actually think about what they're sending in the first place. Equally, if they're going to pay for it, they're going to be very specific about who they're going to be sending that type of stuff to. So This is you thinking back to your inbox again, isn't it? I am, yeah. <laughs> I'm getting angry again. You want people to have like a little digital postage stamp. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So that they're not just sending you random... This is going to cost you guys, yeah. And maybe on that note, before I go off on another rant, then uh, thank you very much to our guests for joining us. So, uh, as always, uh, Simon, Jason, and Chris, thanks for coming along. And James, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.